churches on this earth to testify to the gospel of grace. And as a church, it's our delight every Sunday to recognize that we are part of that and to therefore pray that God would extend the gospel through his church to the larger world around us, to our own community, and right here in our midst. So would you join me together as we pray and beseech God's blessing on his work. Father, we come to you as your church, uh, recognizing that as we focus this morning on, on, on the truth that we have just sung about, that our faith is in Christ alone. And that it is only your blood that can atone for sins and reunite us with yourself for all eternity. We know that your desire is to change the world through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, our righteous substitute. And for that, Father God, we want to pray as a church that you would bless that work even today all around the world. As we continue to pray as we have been for some of the nations where it is the most difficult to be a Christian today. We realize we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, many of whom have a much more difficult time assembling to worship because of direct persecution. I think this morning, particularly of Christian men and women in the West African nation of Nigeria, knowing that that country is so heavily divided between a largely, uh, almost completely Muslim majority in the northern states and a professing Christian uh, group in the southern states, and the, the fighting and the infighting and the violence that that causes. Father God, we pray that you would strengthen the faith this morning of Christian men and women in Nigeria. We've seen in the news these last few years the uh, work of terrorist groups like Boko Haram in northern Nigeria, and we are grateful that they have been pushed back and their ability to uh, cause pain and suffering and death has been somewhat thwarted. And yet there are many other groups, uh, often fueled by a version of radical Islam, who continue to put Christians to death in Nigeria and cause untold amounts of other suffering that seem incredibly foreign to us. And yet these are our brothers and sisters. So, Father, this morning we pray that you alone would sustain their faith and that you would fill their hearts and minds with a glorious image of Christ alone, that they would understand that the gospel that they represent and testify to even in their life, their suffering, and if you would so ordain it, their death is a great gospel and that you would give them a love for you that would protect them, sustain them, and enable them to stay faithful to the cause in their nation. We pray for them this morning. Father, much closer to home, we pray that you would make your name known, the name of Jesus known in our community, even through our outreach to families at Tobias Elementary School and these food baskets that we are collecting. Father, I pray that, that you would lay it on our hearts as a church because you are so beautiful to us that it would be our delight to express that love in such a tangible way as buying food for families right here in our community uh, who may be finding it pretty difficult right now to make all of the financial ends meet. We pray that it would be a tremendous witness and blessing of the supremacy of Christ to the staff and the families of Tobias Elementary School that a church full of people will give it all for Jesus. And because you've given it all for us, what a joy it is for us to pour out love for them in a practical way. So God, I pray not only for full food baskets this Thanksgiving, but, Father, for great uh, impact in through relationships from this church out into our community. I want to pray for other churches in our community as well, Father, thinking especially this morning of our friends over at the Alliance Church in Hillsboro, Pastor Bud, and knowing that he has uh, been in that place for a long time and, and ministered faithfully in this community for several decades, and now just having brought on a new associate pastor, Father, a new staff person can be an exciting time for a church, also an adjustment. I pray for the congregation at Alliance that their salvation and their joy would be found in Christ alone, 
that whatever changes uh, are brought in, that there would be a great celebration of them and unity in that body, but that you would help that congregation not to focus on what um, they either like or don't like about personalities, but that you'd give them a larger vision for serving you as a church family in their neighborhood. So bring them great unity, gospel faithfulness, and use them, we pray. And lastly, Father, we want to pray that we would be that kind of a church too. We pray that we would not only know as a church here at Harvest that our salvation is in Christ alone, but that we would live out our faith around Christ alone, that everything would be lived around you. Even as we talk as a church about our our new uh, membership covenant that our elders have proposed to our membership, Father, I pray that every one of us who considers Harvest his or her church home would be able to take that and read it and think about it and respond to it and, and ask what it is you, as the Lord of the church, have called us as members of the church to, what you have called us to do with and for one another, which are ultimately acts of service to you. So even, Father, as we discuss our church life together, I pray that they would be centered on the reality of your awesomeness as the Lord and Savior, the one in whom we find life. Jesus, we pray that you would glorify yourself in the hearts of men and women this morning, that as we get into the Bible, your spirit would do his work through his word in our hearts and change us as we lift up your son, that we would be people who live for Christ alone, and it is in the matchless name of Christ. We as a church pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us in worship. We're actually going to continue in worship now by uh, attending to God's voice uh, as we open up the Bible and hear from Him. Uh, We've been in a series of sermons these last few Sundays. If you have not been with us or if this is one of your first Sundays with us, that is celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which was not just a historical event, although it was that, but it was really a rediscovery by the church of the true gospel that had been lost over time, uh, the gospel that is proclaimed in the Bible. And it was a, a large and diverse movement. And so as it went on, there was a need to sort of figure out, like, what is the Reformation about? And as we celebrated on its 500th anniversary, what are we celebrating? What does it really boil down to? And that led the people who started that movement, the guys we call the Reformers, to boil down what they were all about into five statements. And we've been taking one of these statements each Sunday and looking at them. And you see them up there on the screen behind me. Uh, The scholarly language of the day was Latin, so they wrote these things all in Latin, but we've helpfully translated them into English because not many of us speak Latin anymore. Uh, The five are sola scriptura, that we operate under the authority of scripture alone. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at sola gratia, by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone, not our own efforts. We are saved, last Sunday, we saw through faith alone, not our ability to contribute to our salvation, but our trusting in the gift that God has given us. And now this morning, we're looking at this fourth of these five statements, solus Christus, in Christ alone. And this morning, I'm really excited to uh, reintroduce um, somebody who, for many of us, is an old friend, and for the rest of us, is becoming a familiar friend, uh, Dr. Ron Frost, who joined us uh, this past summer and opened the word for us there. He's going to come this morning as well. Now, I have to tell you that um, I did get in a little bit of trouble with Ron last time he was here uh, because I kept introducing him as Dr. Frost. Now, you can come over here. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to step over here in case I get in more trouble by saying this. But um, uh, Ron taught for many years at Multnomah Biblical Seminary, and so many of us in the area have gotten to know him simply as Dr. Frost. And he said, you've got to quit calling me that. You've got to call me Ron. I can't call you Ron, so I'm proposing a compromise. I'm going to call you Dr. Ron. How's that? (laughs) 
Now, I don't have my doctoral degree. I did do a master's degree. So if you would like to return the favor and call me Master Matt, I'm totally open <laughs> to that. I tried to get my wife and kids to do that for years, and they were having none of it. So if you want to do it, I'm all for it. But um, before I completely ruin everything we've done here this morning, I'm going to stop talking. Would you please welcome Dr. Ron? Thank you. It's really my delight to be back uh, among you again. And um, I was really encouraged uh, by the prayer time this morning. Uh, Matt, without realizing it, uh, was praying for me at length in that uh, this Friday I fly to uh, Nigeria and I'll be there for most of November. I get to teach at a seminar in Gindari, which is near Jos, and uh, it has some potential excitement. It always does to go to Nigeria, and um, so those prayers are encouraging to me. Thank you very much. The, the delightful people there in Nigeria, this, uh, this will be my second trip there, so do pray for those folks there in a... a uh, dynamic uh, time of confrontation, really, of two different, particularly two different versions of uh, how does life work, what's the nature of religion. I get to talk about uh, Luther's, uh, call it his uh, aphorism, his statement, in Christ alone. And uh, I'm a history guy. What I taught at Multnomah was church history, history, history of theology. So I, I'm going, I get to teach a little bit, preach a little bit on dear old Luther, who was a man I, I got to know doing my studies, my advanced studies in England for three years. I ended up spending more time with Luther than I ever dreamt I would. Well, I'm not a Lutheran. I'm not the son of a Lutheran. I've never been a Lutheran. Uh, so it, it, it was new territory for me. What I found, though, was a, uh, a man whose um, love for the Word, a man whose love for Christ was just absolutely clear and uh, someone who who bears getting to know we should we, we should get to know him better and what he has to say what he has to teach is rich stuff and it's hard to believe that we're cheering the 500 year mark of his big day in 1517 and um, October 31st of course is when he posted the 95 theses what most of you don't know is that in September 4th or 5th he posted 97 theses and those are the ones that I get really excited about. But that's, you have to talk to me over coffee on that one. Um, so Luther has a lot to share. His touchstone themes all have one ultimate target. of Faith and the nature of grace. All of these things come together in the work of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so I'm delighted to be able to unfold a little bit of that. And let me just pause and have my own prayer as we launch into this. Lord, I submit to you my heart and I ask that I would... Uh, be tender-hearted toward you and toward, uh, toward your spirit, that you would work in a way that is encouraging to all of us, that we could taste and see more of who you are and how you love us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the work of Jesus Christ, um, it's interesting how that work is running all through the Bible. It, you could say arguably from uh, putting together what we have in Colossians, that even chapter 1, we start with Christ and the, you know, the, the work of in the beginning and this work of the Spirit hovering over the, uh, uh, the whole work of creation. When we get to Colossians, we discover that everything was made by Him and for Him, Jesus. And through Him, Jesus, everything holds together. We find the same thing stated in uh, John chapter 1, uh, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word 
was God, and he brought everything about, that he is the ultimate creator. So here's my guess when it said, and it was good, it was good, it was good there in chapter one, that it's the, the son doing the work of creation and presenting it to the father, and the father responds, oh, that is good. Now, that's my guess. When we get to heaven, we can find out for sure. But I think the fact that we do have this relational God, this Trinitarian triune God, so we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God who exists in three persons or with three distinctions that are eternal. There's never a time when there wasn't the Father. There's never a time when there wasn't the Son. And there's never been a time when the Father and Son weren't bonded by the presence of the communicating work of the Spirit between them. And that this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God is the God who we talk about whenever we use that term God unless we're specifically referencing the Father himself. Okay? So this may seem like thick theology, but it's awfully important, and I get to unpack it a little bit in our talk this morning, our sharing this morning. And the focus comes in Christ. Now where Christ really starts to come to the focus, to the fore, is in Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters the world. And remember Adam and Eve uh, had before them uh, the word of God. Adam had been told... You can have everything in the garden for food. It's just, it's there for the taking. Oh, one tree, just leave it alone. Just that tree, if you eat of that, that'll lead to death. So don't go there. They did go there. In fact, um, there was another word that came. Um, go there. So it was, if you go there, you'll die. If you go there, you won't die. And so here's this. Two words, two claims, two statements, one by the serpent, and that's another story. Where did he come from? I'll let Matt solve that one. That's, that's a, a rich and profound question. Why evil? But what we find is that in the coming of evil, Adam and Eve accepted the word, not of God, but of the serpent. And they went ahead and participated in that forbidden fruit. They ate of it. And since then, humanity has been separated from the life of God right from birth. The life of God isn't within them, and there's this curving in on themselves. Uh, Luther is the one who referenced this as he talked about sin as incurvatus in se, curving in on ourselves. And that's exactly what we see when they sinned. And God comes into the garden and they are ashamed because even though before that they had been just in the same state, now when God comes in, they're curved in on themselves and they realize they're naked and they're ashamed. They try and hide from God. So no longer a union communion, but now separation and shame. And so that's the big picture that we have. And how does God deal with this problem of the garden with sin, of now having received and followed the word of the serpent and not the word of God? Well, with that change, with that shift, God confronts the whole progression. Adam, what happened here? Why didn't you listen to what I told you? You listened to your wife, and you shouldn't have on this occasion. There's Most of the time you should, but on this occasion, what were you thinking? And from that progression, we see that God then talks to Eve, and he said, okay, Eve, there are going to be some consequences of what you've done. But I'm going to, I'm just, I'll let you read that on your own. What I will do, though, is make sure that we're going to solve the problem of sin, and there will be the seed of the woman 
who will come and crush the head, bruise the head of the serpent. The serpent's seed will be crushed, and it will, in the process, damage or crush or bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, knowing our biology, this is going to be something very unique because it's going to be the seed of the woman. And sure enough, we have the promise that is then followed all the way through the Old Testament. We find that uh, in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, this theme of solving problems, solving the great problem with the blessing comes through a promise that God makes. And that promise is that um, Abram, through you, he later on gets his name changed to Abraham, Abram, in you... Uh, I'm going to bring a blessing, and through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it's interesting that in Galatians, Paul talks about that as the gospel that's preached in the Old Testament. And that's a, a sermon series that is rich and great and it's coming up, but it's a profound reality that the promise of the seed who is coming becomes the promise of the blessing that God is going to bring to the nations, including us. And that promise, then, is through the seed, and it unfolds ultimately in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is born of a virgin. And here we have the fulfillment of the one who is promised clear back from the Old Testament and comes to the culmination on the cross, and then with his resurrection, we have his defeat of Satan, his conquering of death, and once again, the word of God reigns supreme. Now, we have to believe and accept that word, and that's what we want to talk about this morning, a little bit of how Luther saw this all coming together. How did he see this promise of Christ, this blessing of Christ, come to application in our lives through Jesus Christ? We just heard the reading of the scripture, don't be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And here we have this, this sense of equality, believe in God, believe in me which sounds a little jarring if someone thinks of Jesus as less than God, other than God. And so this chapter 14 is profound because it shakes up our standard thinking, where we think of persons as individuals. And Jesus doesn't let us stay on that one. That's something he has to confront for his disciples, and through his disciples, it, it's confronted for us, that we believe in God the Father we believe in God the Son. We believe because of the ministry of God the Spirit who draws us and invites us into that faith. And so Luther, as he's wrestling with how to talk about this, takes this theme of Christ alone as the basis for our salvation. And what I'm going to do is let, uh, let Luther himself talk a little bit about how he sees this, this promise unfold, especially where we... Um, we uh, go on to verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is really strong on that. And it sounds like he's really obnoxious because, my goodness, doesn't everyone, you know, doesn't every road at the mountain, at the base of the mountain, every path ultimately lead to the peak of the mountain? Why are we so exclusive? Why are we so obnoxious? Well, I like the sentiment. I've got a stepbrother who's a Buddhist, and I would love, as he's dying of cancer, just maybe weeks, months left, and I'm talking with him, I would long for him to meet me in the heavenly place to come. 
But what we have to do is recognize that Jesus says something about that. And here's Luther's way of summarizing the teaching of Jesus. And um, it's a little unique, so hold on to your hats. He's talking about the benefits of faith. Sola fide, what is faith? Well, here he's going to talk about the object of our faith. What is it that changes us when we have faith? So this is from his three treatises, uh, three writings, three pamphlets that he wrote in 1520. And if ever you've seen the movies, uh, they had one on PBS, and before that, the Luther movie that came out about 15 years ago. It's a really good movie in terms of the historical quality. And it has this episode where he's uh, standing before the emperor of the Holy Roman uh, Empire, which was not really holy, it wasn't particularly Roman, and it wasn't much of an empire, but Charles V was in charge of that realm. And Luther was under his ultimate perusal. And so he's coming there to be tested. The Pope says, I want you to examine this man. And um, as he's standing there, he has this collection of writings laid on a table in front of him. And he's told, you must deny these writings. You must say, I reject what I've written here. Well, I'm going to read from one of the writings that were on the table uh, from his uh, work, Freedom of a Christian. And here's what he has to say about faith. And you can see whether it needs to be thrown out or not. The third incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. By this mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And he's citing here Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32, which takes the passage from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the launching passage of marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother, the two shall become one flesh. And in Ephesians 5, he says, well, this is a mystery, Paul writes, as he's composing this letter. He says, this actually is referring to Christ and the church. We go, it's referring to Christ and the church? Clear back in chapter 2, the answer is yes. Christ is present throughout the scriptures. And the the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the book of Revelation puts a culmination on this theme that marriage is, yes, it's important for procreation, it's important for us to have families and all the rest, but remember that one group of Sadducees coming and saying, what if this uh, woman had multiple husbands? What would you do with this one after the other dying? And Jesus said, don't you get it? There's no marriage in heaven. Well, actually, there's one marriage in heaven, Christ and the church. So it's a shocking reality to us, and especially shocking for us guys viewing ourselves as a bride, but you take out the gender and sexual issues, and you get the issues of devotion, mutual devotion, commitment, the bonding reality of a marital union. And so that's what Paul had in mind, and that's what is being picked up on by Luther. So they become one flesh, and if they are one flesh, there's between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples, I call them workshops, of, of this one true marriage. It follows that everything they have, they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Now, would that be fair? If a bride comes into the marriage, or the groom, and is coming in maybe with a jail record and maybe a poverty and maybe indebtedness, when the marriage occurs, guess what? 
If the one happens to be wealthy and successful and all the rest, it just becomes common lot, doesn't it? So that's the point he's going to make here. He picks up on this. Since human marriages are but poor examples of the one true marriage, it follows that everything they have they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these, and we shall see the unsearchable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. Our souls are full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's. While... Grace, life, and salvation will be the souls. For if Christ is the bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are the, which are the brides and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? Here we have the most pleasing vision, not only of communion, but of a blessed struggle and victory and salvation and redemption. Christ is God and man in one person. He has neither sinned nor died and is not condemned, and he cannot sin, die, or be condemned. His righteousness, life, and salvation are unconquerable, eternal, omnipotent. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? And you catch the vision that he's offering us here. And it's not something that we commonly talk about in churches, to be honest with you. <laughs> when I started reading Luther, I'm going, you know what? This is something, I do Bible read-throughs. That's my favorite thing to do, through two or three a year. And what I find is this theme, the bridal theme, is there throughout the whole Bible. It's really clear. And yet I find myself going into a lot of Christian circles, and they don't do much with it. They hardly reference it. And maybe it's for some reasons that we need to look at. But when Jesus is talking here, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's talking about himself being the only way to the Father in the same way that in the marriage, guess what? The benefits that are available, the bride and the groom, are only going to come through the union. It's not some idea that goodness should be available to everyone. It's rather, no, no, we are sinners. And apart from this union, we have no access to the righteousness and the eternal life and the eternal hope that comes through Christ alone. So this is the brilliant insight that Luther is bringing as part of the Reformation. As we, as we look at this, this whole theme of marriage, we call it participation in Christ, has this sense of our being in Christ, Christ in us, Christ with us, and it has to do with the bonding presence of Jesus who shares both human life and divine life. That is, Jesus was forever the Word, always with the Father, always the Son, but he enters into the world and becomes a man, and through that, we who are the generic man or mankind we then have access to him through his humanity. He joins humanity, but he is not part of sinful humanity, not what Adam did 
and left to us, but now he is a sinless representative of humanity. And in this union, we find ourselves having access to God through Jesus by our union with Jesus. Okay? Sounds a little exotic, but guess what? The Bible actually talks about this. So what Jesus then is saying, let me just read on here a little bit beyond where we were um, reading here in the earlier uh, reading of the text of Scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, all this is in response to Thomas, who says, "Uh, Lord, um, if you're going to have a place where we can be with you, what's the GPS on that? How do we, where, I want to put that in my sat-nav, you know, let me set that up. And he says, no, no, you're a little too concrete in your thinking. I hate to tell you this, but it's who I am. It's not where I'm standing that's the issue. So it's who I am as the way, the truth, and the life. All of that consolidates in who I am. And that's the only way you can come to the Father. <laughs> Philip goes, Ho, 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 Jesus, I got a question too. Thomas is sitting there puzzling over this. Philip stands up and says, "Uh, No, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for us. (laughs) Well, guess what? There's more teaching to be done. And Jesus responds, Oh, I'm going to put it in the side because I'm sure it was there. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? what? Of course I know you, Jesus. I've been with you for three years. Jesus goes on. That's actually not in the text, but that's what he's thinking. Do you not believe? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the basis of the works that I'm doing, that is works that only God can do. So do you catch the picture here? Jesus is shaking up what we call, the fancy word for this is our ontology, our, our view of how we exist as people, as beings. We exist ultimately as a fruit or as an extension of God having created us in his own image. So we are, God is not eternally a physical being. Certainly when Jesus becomes a man, he enters into flesh, that's not his essential reality. In fact, his ultimate reality is that he is the Logos who is forever with the Father. And we, we know from John 17 how Jesus is so excited as he prays to the Father. He says, Father, you know the glory that I had with you from before the creation? Oh, I can hardly wait that they, those who believe in me, can enter into that glory, the glory you gave me because you loved me for the rest of eternity. So Jesus took on flesh. The reality is that he was one with the Father by the Spirit in that communion union, and we're invited to participate in Christ for the rest of eternity. And so there's some head scratching to be done here because we're thinking in such concrete terms that it's my physical reality that's the defining reality. Well, we always will be embodied people, that's for sure, and we're not trying to divide the soul from the spirit and the body, but what we're saying is the deeper reality of who we are is that which is spirit, and spirit can unite with spirit. 
fact, perhaps we should sneak ahead and take a look at verse 17. He promises here the coming of the helper in verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, companion, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, the truth, the true spirit, the one who activates and lives and presents and performs truth, whom the world cannot receive, and there's that exclusion again, because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the world does not have the spirit of God but what's he promising to his disciples here and to all of us who are followers of Christ, who believe in Christ, believe in Father, believe also in me. That's where we started. So this faith is a process of our coming into that relationship. And with that relationship, we discover, verse 17 again, you know him for he dwells, speaking of the Spirit, with you and will be in you. Okay, so the Spirit will be with me and will be in me as a believer. And that's true for all of us who are believers. Well, we better chase a little scripture to make sure Jesus wasn't wrong on that. <laughs> well, of course he wasn't wrong on that. But let's see how Paul unfolds that, for instance, as he writes to the Corinthians. So in Corinthians, Paul is writing about this relationship we have with Christ by the Spirit. And what he does is he explains how God exists eternally in a communion that is shaped by the searching work of the Spirit who takes the depth of the Father's heart, his thoughts, his inner... He's a spirit, but he has a spirit. Okay, I don't get that, but here it is. The Spirit searches out the depths of God's heart, his inner being, and communicates that presumably to the Son who reciprocates it because the Spirit of God, the Father is also the Spirit of God the Son. And he takes it and you have this back and forth between the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is the one who communicates the love of God. In fact, that's Jonathan Edwards, the old Puritan, says the label for God's relationship is love. And the Spirit is the one who's doing the work of communicating back and forth. Now let me just read it so you can track with me. He's saying, look at, Paul writes to a divided church, the Corinthians were struggling. Among the mature, we impart a wisdom that is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to past, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. This, by the way, again, is 1 Corinthians 2. I'm picking it up in verse 8, sorry, 6. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and here he's going to cite Isaiah 64, 4, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And to know God is to love him. To come into a relationship with him is to come into a love relationship because that's who he is. To know him is to be, oh my God, to respond in love. And so he, these things God has revealed through the Spirit for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So what is the Spirit's work? The probing, seeking, searching ministry. He's the explorer of the heart. For no one knows a person except the thoughts, except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have 
received not the spirit of the world. By the way, what is it that shapes and defines? Because we're all spiritual beings. We work from the inside out. We're heart-based. And remember that in Ephesians, Paul talks about we used to be, for those of us who are believers, we used to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived and walked, following after the desires, the lusts of our mind and our flesh. But now we're not there anymore, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay? So that's the kind of, we have to understand a little bit of the plumbing of the Spirit, and that's what Paul is talking about here as he's talking to the Corinthians. So no one, also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand these things freely given us by God. And we impart these, this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, uppercase Spirit interpreting spiritual matters to those who are spiritual. So it's spiritual to spiritual. In other words, his spirit communing with us as spiritual beings. Now that our spirits are awakened and alive. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And they're not able to, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself not to be judged by anyone. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ by the presence of the spirit. I think I need to unpack that a little bit. But Paul goes forward with that, and we go just let's go up to chapter six, where Paul is talking to these Corinthians. The Corinthians had some struggles. Okay, they were not necessarily the most godly people that ever walked the face of the earth. Just saying. And guess what? It's a little bit like our world today. Lots of struggles. And one of the problems they had is some of the people from the church had old habits. They had temples in Corinth that were all about idols and ungodly idolatry and some of that included sexual activities prostitution and Paul is confronting some of the people who were coming to Christ but thought they could just do their thing at the local temple and he responds to that in chapter 6 verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute God forbid! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? This is chapter 6, verse 16. For it, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Going back to Genesis 2.24 once again. The inauguration of the marriage theme. And he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Aha! So that's what Paul has taken from John 14, that the Spirit will be with you and will be in you, who are believers. Flee then from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do you catch this whole picture that's starting to form for us here in terms of how it is that we are ultimately in Christ alone? It's by the Spirit who unites us with Christ 
that sets up this whole pathway of salvation for us because, as Luther put it so profoundly and shockingly, um, he takes all of our sin and he dies because of our sin. And he takes and gives us his life when he's raised from the dead. So there's this grand exchange. And Paul talks about this very clearly in uh, Romans uh, 6 and 7. So we die with him, and then we live with him through his resurrection. So all of this then is what we call a work of, of uh, participation. Now, question. Is our salvation, isn't it imputation? In other words, don't we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? Well, that's been the great tradition of the church but we have to be careful not to treat this idea of my receiving the righteousness of Christ as a legal act, a forensic act, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, as if it's a standalone reality. It's a bit like a marriage, where there is both a legal component and there's the union of the couple. And so Luther goes and talks about this. He says, we are given the righteousness of Christ, as he talked about in the part I read, the portion I read. But he said, it's a little bit like in a marriage where you also can have the legal document that's signed, witnessed, that represents the protection of the spouses, both spouses, if there's any question about the resources of the one that now belong to the other. And if there's an early death, for instance... Maybe the first night of the marriage, a heart attack, who knows? There's the document. It's clear. Everything is now held in common. And so the legal feature, imputing or identifying the united ownership, is there for all to see. It's a legal feature. But that's like the bow being tied on the ribbon around the reality of the marriage, isn't it? It's not that, I don't know, I'm an old bachelor, I never got married, so I don't know what people do on anniversaries. But do you take that contract out and put it on the table and put two candles there and go say, there it is, we're married. <laughs> or is it the kids running around the room that actually say, no, we're married. Yeah, this is the way God designed it. You see, the document is the lesser feature, the greater feature is the reality of the union. And I think that's, if we can get that and recognize we're not fighting with the doctrine of imputation or imputed righteousness, but rather there's an explanation in that that's far more profound and that we get it through our marriage where the two literally are one, are united, and have everything held as a shared reality. And there's the beauty of that. So, what do we do as the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, brings us into this relationship, a relationship that some people are skeptical about because of there's this fancy doctrine of what they call incommensurability, or it's the idea of the unbri uh, an unbridgeable divide between, between God as creator and those of us who are humans, that there, you just cannot bring a creator into contact with a creation. But who does that? Because we can't do that. But who does that? Who is fully God, fully man, and fully one, Jesus Christ. So as we're united by his spirit to him, we then have access to the eternal life of God that we would never have had apart from this union. And so that's the reality that stands before us then. So what? As we think about this emphasis on 
union with Christ, how important is it? Does it make a difference? Yes, it makes a huge difference in the way we live because if I view myself as a believer, I've given my heart to Christ and the Spirit of God is pouring the love of God out into my heart. Romans 5, 5 makes that clear. For the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that's what stabilizes us. That's what gives us the pathway forward. In Romans 5.5 that I just cited, it goes forward and talks about the difficult time we have as people who are still living with all the bad habits of once making myself like a god and thinking I could live without God and following after the prince of the power of the air. All those things are still sort of habits in me, but I now have a new presence, the Spirit of God, telling me God loves you, God loves you. And what the wrestling match then is, what, I'm gonna, what will I do now when that person cuts me off and I will go, oh, oh, thank you, Lord, that you have loved me because I've done that to others. You know, whatever it is. This whole thing of growing into the reality of the Spirit of God who's dwelling within me and what does he do when, it, when he's within me and within you and within us? Oh, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love? Uh, joy? Peace, patience with those drivers, and so on. Catch that? Now, those are the qualities of Christ himself. And the Spirit brings those to life within us as we're now in union and communion with Christ by his Spirit, and we start to live a changed life from the inside out. In fact, famously, Luther, in the 97 Theses, which he wrote to, in September 4th, 1517, so we're already ready to celebrate that one. He writes, he says, we do not become, as, Luther, as um, the great philosopher uh, Aristotle said, Aristotle said the way we become good people is by practicing good deeds. And Luther challenged that. It was Article 45, Thesis 42, I'm sorry, in his 97 thesis, he said, we do not become righteous by practicing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous, we start to practice righteous deeds. So that's the beginning of Luther's Reformation, that getting away from the idea that we practice goodness and we become good. No one will practice goodness unless the goodness of God starts to change us by the Spirit of God working in us from the inside out. And then as the Spirit of God abides in us and we abide in the Word of God, we start to obey Him. And that's what he says later on in chapter 14 of chap the chapter that we're reading in John. He said, if someone loves me, they'll keep my commandments. The one who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. And this whole idea, but what could happen is someone could mistake that love-obedience connection as if my obedience becomes my love. It's not that way. And so he, just to make sure we get it, he goes into chapter 15, which is the vine and the branches. And it's not a two-way flow in the vine and the branches, is it? It's one way. It's from the vine to the branch to the fruit. And the fruit bear that which is coming from within. And that's the fruit of the Spirit that I think Paul is picking up on that when he writes about the fruit of the Spirit. The life of Christ in us is that which begins to change us and bear fruit that makes everyone in the neighborhood want to say, where did that fruit come from? I love your love, your joy, your peace. How can I have some of that? And the answer is in Christ alone. 
in Christ alone, by the Spirit of Christ working in us, but it's Christ alone who produces this transformation as we become united with him in this love and life relationship. So, what do we do with this? Well, Christ came, though he was with God before the creation, he has now become a man, and there will never be a time in all of, he, all of the rest of history where he will not be a man. But he's still the God who is a man. And in his union, we have full access. We become partakers, Peter puts it in his own first letter. We become partakers of divinity. We don't become divine. We become partakers in divinity through Christ who dwells in us by his spirit. And with that reality, then, we have freedom from our guilt, our, our sense of ungodliness, because as we get to chapter 8 in Romans, the love of God's poured out into our hearts, chapter 5, when we get to chapter 8, what does it say? Well, set your mind on the spirit, not on the flesh. Well, what do I do when I set my mind on the spirit? Well, what was the last thing we heard about the spirit back in chapter 5? He's pouring God's love out into our hearts. And he says, well, first of all, um, among other things, you'll be told by the witness of the Spirit, call God Daddy, Abba, because you're now in Christ as a son with Christ of God. And also, he'll take your inarticulate sense of, I don't know how to pray, I'm struggling, oh, oh God, help me. And he'll say, okay, the Spirit can handle that. He knows the depth of who you are. He'll communicate that to the Father. Oh, that's in Romans 8. More references to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 than in any other chapter in the Bible. And how does the chapter 8 end? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can anything in heaven or earth or anywhere? The answer is nothing can separate us from that love. So you start to see the invitation to the spiritual life that God has given us through Christ Jesus. Christ alone is the pathway forward. So this is the beautiful story that God has given us. So what do we do with this? First, we don't make Thomas's mistake of getting out our GPS. Now, okay, now, Christ, where are we going to go? Where are we going to meet you at a certain location? No, no, it's who I am, not where I'm standing, that is the defining reality that I'm talking to you about. Oh, Thomas, get with it. Then secondly, we don't make Philip's mistake of separating the Father and the Son. The Jehovah's Witnesses do that. The Mormons do that. Everyone does that. We don't do that. When you've seen me, he says to Philip, you've seen the Father, I am the Father, or one, I'm the Father, it's in me, I'm in the Father. And then he goes on later on in the chapter, and he says, by the way, uh, what I'm going to be doing here is uh, giving you this rich opportunity, because I live, you will live. This is down in chapter 19 of, of our chapter here, uh, chapter 14, John. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you and me, and I and you. Oh, my goodness. Jesus says, you know, I'm in the Father. Well, you're also in me, and I'm in you. And you're then in the Father. And then it goes on, and it says, if anyone loves me, down in verse 22, 23, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's us. Who believe through Christ alone, through Christ alone, through Christ alone. So what we do, thirdly, we don't make Thomas's mistake, we don't make Philip's mistake. Thirdly, we listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit indwelling us. That is critical stuff. We believe it. Okay, I, I don't get how the plumbing works. 
I don't feel the Spirit. I don't, you know, have that. But what happens is other people start to see it in you. You know, Moses wasn't conscious that his face was glowing back in the Old Testament. Well, when the Spirit of God starts to work in us, what happens? Love, joy, peace, patience. And someone who's born again, coming to life in Christ, everyone around will say, wow, something's happening in you. But you'll be unselfconscious. What you will be conscious of is how you're more and more interested in Christ. You want to know more about him. You'll start reading your Bible like crazy because you just can't get enough. You'll be hungry for fellowship. You'll want, want to be part of the church. You'll pour yourself into the lives of other people because God has a spreading goodness. And once that spreading goodness comes into our hearts, we start to spread it wherever we go. And believe me, Beaverton can use it. Hillsboro, Portland, even Camas where I live. Boy, we need it. So fourthly, we accept the combination here that in Christ we share God's life and that is granted to us by the Spirit living within all who believe. Let me finish with Luther. Can I do that? I didn't read all that he had to say here. It's a big book. But let me read at least a little more. And we'll conclude with this. Uh, we'll overlap with where we left off. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own and as if he himself had sinned, suffered, and died and descended into hell that he might become, that he might overcome them. So what he's getting at here is on the cross as Jesus was slain and as he was having the charges brought against him, he was silent. He was the sheep that was silent who went to be slain because he took our guilt upon himself and didn't deny the guilt, even though no one could charge him with sin. And so he goes on. Now, since it was such a one who did all this and death and hell could not swallow him up, these were necessarily swallowed up by him in a mighty duel. For his righteousness is greater than the sins of all men, his life stronger than death, his salvation more invincible than hell. Thus the believing soul, by means of the pledge of his faith, is free in Christ, its bridegroom, free from all sins, secure from death and hell, and is endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of Christ, its bridegroom." He takes to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle, cleansing her with the washing of water with the word, of life, that is, by faith in the word of life, righteousness and salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, thank you so very much for becoming sin that we might become righteous, for taking on yourself our garb of insolence, arrogance, and selfishness, and giving us your joy, your delight, your righteousness, and your goodness. And I pray that today we could live out more than ever before what it means to be in Christ and for you to be in us, in Christ alone. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.